Jerry, it's Donald. Congratulations on the Artsback podcast. It's frankly tremendous. They used to love me on podcasts. You know, they used to have me on all the time. Joe Rogan, Oprah. They don't call me anymore. I wonder why. But frankly, Artsback is perhaps the greatest podcast we've ever seen when you're looking at the totality of podcasts. Some podcasts are good. Some podcasts are not so good. But Artsback is frankly tremendous. Congrats. Donald out. Welcome back to Art Smack, a weekly podcast about the art world, capital A, capital W. I'm Jerry Gagosian, and I'm here with my host, Matt Capasso. And we've got a lot on the docket this week because the art world writes itself, and it's never a boring place to be. On this week's episode of Art Smack, we will talk about the blowout auctions at Christie's. We'll talk about pay transparency in the art world. It should be a fun one. And later, we'll cover a syndrome plaguing the art world and beyond, known as paint fishing. Well, I kind of invented that term, but we'll cover that phenomena. Phenomena. That funk phenomena. Ah, yeah. Ah. All right, Jerry. It's my turn to play a game this week. Are you ready? Yeah. This game's entitled The Spiritually Miami Artist Draft-A-Palooza 2022. Okay. Yeah. So spiritually Miami artist. Yeah. What I'm is sh- that? I'm sure you're probably like, what is going on? What is that? Mm-hmm. Well, let's start off by defining what we mean by a spiritually Miami artist. I think I know what you Take mean. Take a guess. But... It's... Oh, well, I, I spent many years living in Miami. I grew up in South Florida. So when I think of art in Miami, I think of like Brito. You're talking about like that kind of art? We're talking about Brito. We're talking about Alec Monopoly. We're talking about the Kings of South Beach art, at least. You know what I mean? You, I, I, and I feel like the audience intuitively does know the type of art we're talking. It's always bold. It's always hella colorful. It's poppy. There's like hard lines. It takes really good Instagram photos. And people will have their friends take shots of them posing in front of them on the streets. Okay, 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 okay. So it's like kind of, go- it's always like gauche, shiny, yeah. sort of dated, bas- basic people love it. It's like, it's ultra accessible. Right. So a spiritually Miami artist mm-hmm. is someone who maybe doesn't actually sit in the Miami art scene. Maybe mm-hmm. they're in New York, maybe they're in London, LA, wherever. But spiritually, you know, the vibe is there. Okay. That South Beach vibe is there. Their Mecca is Miami. Their Mecca is Miami. Like, I think in the long run, they'll make the pilgrimage home. Okay. Bye. We're going to do a draft. You're going to go first with the first pick. Then I'm going to go second. You'll go third and so on. We're just going to do three each. Now, we, we didn't plan this before, right? So if you overlap, we have some backups that we can go through so that we have unique rosters. What is this like? I feel like you're trying to make I listen, me play. I listen to too much sports podcasting, which is okay. leading me to like come up with weird, funky drafts. Okay, it's not done in the art world before. We're bringing it here. Is oh. there going to be like money involved in this? Maybe. Okay, well, that'll be episode three. But... Episode three, we'll go through the results, yeah, monetarily. <laughs> All right, with the first pick, okay, of the 2022 spiritually Miami artist draft. I Jerry Gagosian selects. I would say, like, hands down, number one would probably be Robert Indiana. Mr. Love himself. Robert Indiana, off the board. Hope, any of those sculptures. Takes great photos. In in a public space. Yes. Okay. Shit, that was one of mine. Okay. We'll regroup. We'll regroup. My top guy. Okay. I don't know if this is controversial. I just saw one last week, and to me, it just screamed Miami. Old school Klaus Oldenburg, pop sculptor. I kind of enjoy looking at his Mm kind of quirky things. Mm -hmm. But to me, they're screaming, you know. Yeah. Miami. So with my pick, I'll go with Klaus Oldenburg. Okay. Back to you. That's an interesting choice. I just have to say because his work did contain a very interesting element of criticality that in the 1960s, I think was very relevant and important 
but he's one of those artists that got so derailed with money and scale that you're right. He is now totally spiritually. Uh, he's he's a spiritual mecca uh, uh, Miami artist. Yeah, I think okay. it's the, the aging of it. Has has led me to it that. It did not conclusion. age well. Did not age that well. Okay. All right. Okay, number okay. two pick. For okay. Jerry. Me. I'm gonna go with Daniel Arshaw. Hot take. Yeah. I like justify. Like like a concrete crystallized Porsche. <laughs> um. You know. There's... Also in a public space where like a really hot Insta ho Instagram model could like be holding like her Birkin in like some tiny sh- dress she just bought off Sheen can be like like leaning up against it with her new like yeah. ass implants like that is like the work that she leaving, wants like, to be posing with leaving live or mansion some club and like stop to take a photo before they go home yeah uh, for 100% yeah and it would be like iconic for them. Their simpy boyfriends like are definitely gonna take like forty five different pictures and angles of her just in front of that. That's a great pick. All right, for my second pick, I'm going with a name that's probably not household, but I'm sure people in New York know the work. The artist's name is Idris B. Shout out to Idris. So I first discovered Idris's work while taking a stroll up and down Park Avenue in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I was struck because Park Avenue is a beautiful street, beautiful avenue that has a median in the middle that's grassy. It's very unique actually for the avenues in New York, which are usually hill holes, but Park Avenue is gorgeous. And in the middle of this lush green median is a gigantic polygonal bright blue gorilla sculpture. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what are we doing? It looks like a physical NFT. It looks like someone, yes, extracted an NFT and 3D modeled it and printed it and placed it on Park Avenue. So Idris is born in Paris. He lives in Dubai now. I saw his work in Venice. Oh my Biennale God. Too. Any artist that lives in Dubai is a spiritual Miami I artist. I think there's definitely an overlap. So Idris B, his animal... Polygonal sculptures mm-hmm. to me scream Miami. Okay. Last and, pick of the draft for Wait, Jerry. can I say something though about of this? This is just an opinion. Um whoever's on that curatorial committee for the Park Avenue arts uh like selection, which I think is like an a- annual or biannual curatorial selection. Something like that. Makes has historically, I think in like the last five years, made the most shitty, unattractive, terrible decisions. <laughs> like every single time I'm like, oh, they've they're they've done something new. I walked I walked down Park Avenue. I'm like, it sucks. Like it's just I, I'm waiting to be struck with something You've heard it here beautiful. First to the Park Ave Art Committee. Yeah. Like do something. Tweet good. us. We'll give you some feedback and some advice for next year's installation. Yeah. I, I know some better artists than Idris B. No offense. Speaking of. Okay. Is it last, my turn? Last pick for the Jerry's Spiritual Miami Artist Draft goes to. Okay. This is one. I mean, she really is. This is like her work is prominently hung in the restaurant at the Rubel collection in <laughs> in the bar so this like it, it, and that is the the heart of the you know Miami art scene is the Rubel collection is Allison Zuckerman Allison Zuckerman and Allison Zuckerman's work it to me looks you know has the makings of all of this it's like if you took Brito and you combined it with Gustav Klimt and George Kondo and Kondo and then also like the collages that I used to make in high school of like girls faces and then you like made them all really big really colorful and then just outlined everything in black you have an Allison Zuckerman and you know what everyone in Miami loves that 
it's just a good one. It just hollers Miami. Yeah, that's a good one. They sell too a lot. Yeah, for high prices. So I mean, bless her. Well, uh, honestly, bless all these guys. And the last guy on my pick, I'll wrap up with my last pick. I'm going to take Alex Israel. Okay. Just, just, I think it's I think it's appropriate. Respect the work. You do. Moving on. I would I I would put it more in the graphic design Ooh. arena than I would um call him an artist. But, but okay. again, that's it. So that wraps up. Okay, so you know, write us in or DM me if you think we're wrong or if you have an opinion. Which I'm sure people otherwise. Will. So we'll go through here are the rosters. Jerry's starting three. Mm-hmm. At point guard is Robert Indiana. <laughs> Uh, small forward will be Daniel Arsham, and coming in a power forward is Allison Zuckerman. For me, Klaus Oldenburg is running point. Idris B is holding down the low post, and Alex Israel is my three-point specialist shooting guard. So those are basketball references, by the way. I Do have you know? no idea what you just said. Okay, I have my big question of the week. Ding, ding, ding. What do you got? Okay. I mean this. This is a big question. I'm, you know, it's a big political league in America. So here we go. Oh, oh boy. This is as straightforward as I can be. Can you truly love art and artists and be a Republican? Oh, no. Wait, I didn't mean to say no, but like you're going there. She yeah. went there. I mean, why not? Let's ask that question. Okay. Can you truly love art and artists while being a Republican. A lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, because, okay, let's face it. The, the majority of artists that make art skew left, right? True. And the people who sell the work, at least virtue signal, and historically donate yeah. democratically. We looked that up, remember? Mm -hmm. we, we, because political donations, you can. I, one night we were just bored and we were like, I wonder what, like, the, with the mega dealers, like, who they give political contrib contributions to. And it's all Democrats. It's all like it was Clinton, it was Obama, it was Biden. And these are big name dealers mm -hmm. and artists that donate. So they, they do kind of walk the walk, talk the talk yep. on that front. But then they sell, obviously, to yeah. um, major. Republicans. Like Michael Jordan once said, Republicans buy sneakers too. There was a report that came out that discussed some of the biggest art collectors in the world. Last week, we talked about Steve Cohen. Here are some of his contemporaries. Ken Griffin, who founded a company called Citadel. Larry Ellison, who is the Oracle founder, and Steven Schwartzman, who's a big investor at Blackstone. These are some of the richest people in the world, and they are in the list that came out of the top 10 political donors backing Republican fundraising ahead of this week's elections. These three also happen to be mega, mega art collectors. And together, they have contributed $135 million to conservative-leaning groups this year, but God knows their art collections in totality are in the billions of dollars. Um, Do they really love the arts and the artists or do they love the asset of the arts? So you'd have to imagine if they're collecting, let's say these, some of these people, I don't want to use these three specifically, right? Because they're yeah, unicorns in this. But if you're a Republican conservative type and you like to collect art, especially in 2022, you're likely going to come across some art that has a politically charged message that you probably don't believe in. So do they not buy that work based on their political beliefs as if they probably wouldn't watch some TV shows or movies that have, I don't know, some sort of spin that goes against their political ideology. I'm thinking about that. There's this show um, called Yellowstone that took America by storm, but somehow... People and the coasts and liberal elites didn't even know it existed. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yellowstone. So what is it? It's it's a a TV show about a family. I think there's a lot of like 
sorry, Yellowstone heads, a lot of like cowboy, you know, outback, Western type thing. But then a lot of the ideology in it, people said, there's a Times piece about it, skewed conservative. And it caught like wildfire in conservative America and got millions of views every week. But people on the coast never even heard of it. I've never heard of so it. So it just, it, it reminds me of that, like in art, sometimes there are these, these silos that open up. Like, I don't know. Is there, is there a thing as like conservative art? Have you ever heard of anything yeah, like that? Yeah, there, like, there is conservative art. Yeah. Like, um. Because there's certainly art that is tied to messaging of, of progressiveness, let's say. Right. You'd say that the messages behind them are championing progressive ideas. Well, I think almost all art initially does, right. and then eventually they become financial assets. And I think that's when people, and with time, maybe the messaging gets lost or that initial message that the artist intended is no longer relevant. But what is relevant is how much the artwork is worth because historically <laughs> it's lived yeah, on baby. and then therefore it becomes interesting to the collector as an asset i wonder when they're buying like younger contemporary artists and works if they're even thinking or interested in the ideas that these artists are talking about because they're so antithetical to, I think, what a lot of these Republicans are pushing agenda-wise. So I have a funny anecdote about this. Back when the Black Lives Matter movement was sort of at its height and there was a lot of political unrest in, I think, 2020, 2021, which feels like 10,000 years ago, I was speaking with this uh senior partner at a blue chip gallery and they wanted to do an exhibition that addressed this issue and this topic and i guess a meeting was held between all of the senior directors and they came to the conclusion that they were not going to be able to, to address head-on the sort of plight of African-Americans and what was going on with police violence and the uh, racial disparity in this country directly without offending their Republican clients by like having an exhibition that just took it on head on. So instead of coming out with like a show that called called out like Black Lives Matter or whatever, they took on the topic of like quote unquote freedom oh. so that they could sort of spin it as Straddle like this is America like yeah. this is freedom and then they could like sneak in like black artists and but under the guys that they were talking about freedom right. in general in okay. general and and it was it was very manipulative and it was like classic it was it, it was <laughs> fucked up it was it, because they they didn't have the gall to really stand up for their artists that they allegedly are, you know, working for. So I don't really know what the takeaway is. I wonder if there's conservatives that even listen to Art Smack. If there are, we want to hear from you too. Like, I'm yeah. very curious about If anyone this. can get Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, <laughs> we'd like to have a, a chat with him. I heard he's a collector and just kind of feel him out. See what he thinks about some of the uh, the paintings that are coming out in the archives. Yeah. Anyways, moving on. All right, Jerry, the biggest news story, I think, in the art world this week was the auction sale at Christie's of the Paul Allen collection. We talked about it last week. And I did an Instagram Live. You did an Instagram Live, which <laughs> was hilarious, and the feedback was so good. Well, it was really fun to do. I was accused of being drunk. People didn't know I was. No, she just loves. She's a Paul Allen stan, and. No, was... I'm. I'm. I am a. I wa I watch live auctions the way people watch football or uh, <laughs> like basketball, which should be the way they actually cater to it's the audiences. Like, so fun. Speaking of sports stuff, that's been a theme of this podcast so far. You and I were walking at Christie's 
like months ago, mm-hmm. maybe last year. Mm-hmm. And we stumbled upon Adrian Myers, who's the auctioneer. He's mm-hmm. the, the guy that everyone saw when they were live streaming it. And we saw him in the gallery and we were like, you know, Adrian, what could be cool is if you guys like keep score. He's like, what? No, like every specialist that's there on the phone should also have a corresponding name and points total or dollar total yeah. on screen so people can track their favorite specialists, how much art they yeah. each have sold so they can root for them. And also I get like obsessed with them. Like I'm like yeah. obsessed with what they're wearing, like their like strength, their confidence, how they put their arm out. Like this week, I, what's her name? The, the main lady. She's really got a high position, I think, right now at Christie's. She's got the brunette bob. She was wearing these incredible golden earrings. She has this, like, very striking Roman nose. I think her name is Brooke or... I don't know. Sarah? She, I, I don't know. She's she's one of the specialists Joanna. at Christie's. Oh, yeah, Margot. That's who it is. Margot. Okay. Oh, that was the your, earrings. That was your queen. Okay. But anyways, I just, like, I idolize all of them. I love, like, picking them out. And you can always tell sort of who they're, they're flirting on the phone. Like, you can tell they're whis- – I love, like, the whisper. You know they're egging them on. You know they're kind of, like, <sighs> anthing them up. They're letting them know what's happening. But you know what I found out when I was uh, speaking to the chairwoman of Sotheby's in Geneva – Carolyn told me that actually the phone calls are randomly assigned to the specialists. They're they're not their clients per se. Interesting. I I did some phone bidding back in my day. I'm yeah. happy to admit if anyone wants to hear about it. Can um, you pretend to do one really fast? Well, you so you pick up the phone. Okay. So in in the auction, let's say there's like 20 lots being mm-hmm. sold and you're giving this sheet from Christie's it says, hey, Matt, your assigned phone bidders are Mr. X, Mr. Y, Mrs. Z. And they're bidding, excuse me, on lots three, seven, and nine. Okay, so when lot three is my first one in the order in the sequence, so I'll call the person typically when like lot one is closing, right? You get them on the phone and you kind of say, hey, how are you, Mr. X? Like, good, you excited? Firstly, I got to let you know this call is being recorded. It's like exactly what you would do in customer service. You uh-huh. get those calls where they're like, I, sir, I got to tell you this call is being recorded. <laughs> We've and run th- a background check on you. Right. And then you got to go like, okay, so you're bidding on lot three, right? Is that correct? And I might throw in like, oh, man, that's a that's a beautiful one. That's yeah. really nice. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And then you kind of tell them, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna re- relay what the auctioneer, what the current bid is, and then I'll ask you if you want to bid. Mm-hmm. And I'll need a simple, they used to tell us to say this, a simple, very clear yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I'll relay it back to you. And that's it. So you pick up the call. The lot opens. Mm-hmm. You'll hear the auctioneer kind of go through the kind of sequence. And I'll say, the bid is at 500000 The bid is at 500000 And I'll say, sir, would you like to bid? The bid is at 500000 Do you want five fifty? Mm-hmm. Which is the next increment. But like, why, why, what are they whispering? Like, when, when you know when they cover their mouths and they're whispering? Like, what's the whisper? Look, unless there's some really amazing information that can be gleaned from lip reading these people. It's mm-hmm. purely for dramatic effect, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I I would imagine some collectors that are, are phone bidding, mm-hmm. maybe they have a rival like in the audience or mm-hmm. someone's watching the screen so they don't want to hear the strategy because remember bidding is like, there is this game theory to it. Yeah. Maybe you don't want to be the first person who throws the bid out. Maybe you want to be the last yeah. or something. So maybe there's like a little bit of gamesmanship. Mm-hmm. And uh, also there's, what is it called? Chandelier. Chandelier bidding. That's kind of what I was talking about before where like when the lot opens up and the auctioneer kind of goes, I have 900, 800, uh, 700, 750, 8, 950, million, $1 million. And it just jumps from different increments fast up. There's no real increments there. It's simply to kind of get the... Get the juices yeah. flowing so people think there's some excitement. See, this is why like people are like, why do you like to watch auctions? It's so douchey. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's so much fun. It's a sport. It's literally a sport. And it's, it's a sport. I think Chrissy's like three years ago, the production of it was crap. And mm-hmm. then pandemic because the sales rooms at the time in the pandemic. Well, I think, okay. So back before the pandemic, the sales room were always filled with people. Mm-hmm. They had rows of audience seats. I think they'd give like VIPs, but also I think some general mm-hmm. public could come or buy tickets. 
they had sky boxes like you'd have in a yeah. sports arena. So for the VIPs to watch in silence and, and sip champagne. But the pandemic changed their production model. So they created like film it sets. It looks like a game show. Game show sets. It really does. Yeah. So they've, with that, with the set, then they had to mm-hmm. add more visual production. So the quality of the streams has gotten a lot better. Mm-hmm. There's better graphics. There's better camera angles. It's not just. And more- the, 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 what do you call them? The, the, Phone bitters. The phone bitters, like they look amazing. They like, look amazing. They dress on them well. They put incredible jewelry on them. because Christie's and Sotheby's, they, they also sell jewels, and they'll oftentimes put the jewels yes. on them that they are selling as advertisements. It's so, so great. It's great. Uh, All right. Wait, so, let me ask you a question. What? And this is kind of for the audience too. Should we do like maybe for the next auction season? Should we do a a watching party? A somewhere? watch party of the auction season. Yeah, I think that would be great. We could set up you live with a microphone, kind of coaching and showing everybody what's going on and giving the commentary. No, we need you too because you used to work Yeah, at we'll do Christie's. like the play-by-play. We'll do like – this is yeah. such a sports-heavy podcast. Okay, so if you guys like this idea – We're going to talk about the Los know. Angeles Lakers at the end if anyone wants to stay <laughs> on. But, but if you guys want, we would love to – the next big auction in New York at least is in May. So we okay. can plan for like a May event. Yeah, we'll Invite do people, it at maybe travel bar or something. Food or drinks, everything. We'll have fun. We need someone with a big screen. Okay. We'll work on it. So the reason why we're talking about all this is, as I mentioned at the top of this uh, this news story, is that this was the week that the Paul Allen collection came to sale. So the headline from the New York Times, from the Wall Street Journal, from Financial Times, from every goddamn news outlet, <laughs> this was the biggest sale in auction history. Wow. Around 1.6 billion with a B mm-hmm. of art was sold from a single collection mm-hmm. in an evening. Another important statistic is that 100% of the art was sold. So sometimes mm-hmm. they have auctions where like one piece just doesn't get sold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So their sell-through rate was 100%. Mm-hmm. So what a start to New York auction season Uh next week november 14th is when sotheby's goes Mm -hmm. which also has amazing collection like high nine figures of art so this is probably the biggest auction season and pure sales figures of all time i'm just going to read through some of the headlines on some of the the results talk about jerry's favorite painting of course Mm -hmm. so five one two three four five artworks in the paul alling evening sale collection sold for over 100 million dollars so that was a first it was the Seurat, the Paul Cezanne, the Van Gogh, the Klimt, and the Gauguin. Some other highlights were the Andrew Wyeth, which the estimate was around $2 million, sold for $23 million. Oh. So, sorry, Jerry, I don't think you could have... That was the painting I, think, I wanted. I don't think you could have uh, crowdsourced Who enough. the hell bought that? Did you buy that for me? If you bought that painting, reach out to us. We want to chat with you. Um... And the Bridge Monet hit, which was incredible. The Bridge Monet hit sixty-four million. Um, so, wow! Uh, when I saw the headline, I mean, look, I in the weeks, months leading up to the sale, when it was announced, in my head, I believed that this would be an, an amazing auction season. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I there was some jitters, obviously, with what was going on in the economy in the summer about, mm-hmm. oh my God, like markets where everything's going to go down. But what I what I anticipated was blockbusters, and I honestly think it exceeded even my expectation. Truly, like everything selling five results over a hundred, like this is big stuff. So, question to you, Jerry: What does this say about the state of the art market? And guys, please note we're not going to turn this into a finance market podcast. Yeah. Although I tried to tried to do that. He's trying to turn into a sports podcast. Sports and finance. But Jerry wouldn't let me. So Jerry, what does it say about the state of the art market? Um, well, I would just say Paul Paul Allen's collection was vast, but it was relatively very safe in terms of, I mean, it, it spanned a lot of art history, but it's not like he collected any controversial art. It was all very sort of, Safe, but household, you know, big, like, blockbuster names. Botticelli, like, you can't argue with it. You can't argue with Monet's Bridges. Right. You can't argue with Syrah. So, and actually, I won't 
say who, but probably one of the leading art market specialists in the world. I had a seltzer water with her recently and we just were catching up and she said, you know, she predicted that the speculative market for emerging artists is going to cool off given the, you know, temperature of the economy. But she said, you know, just watch. People are going to return to very safe blue chip art. And so I, I, it doesn't surprise me that this collection sold. I mean, it, it, it surprises me that it sold so much higher than it did, but it doesn't surprise me that it sold out 100% because these works, all of these works were iconic. Like you open the Gombrich and there is... Yeah, these are the, the art history textbook yeah. leaders of each chapter. Uh, exactly. So it was an amazing result. Shout out to Christie's. They did a great job, a truthfully. Job. Like we said last week, we saw the view... The place was popping and it translated mm-hmm. into an amazing sale. So I wrote down a list of three takeaways that I took from it. Okay, I go for it. get your comments on it. So takeaway number one, the art market is strong regardless of the macroeconomic environment. Mm-hmm. Two, the art market is supply driven. What do I mean by that? The collecting community will always meet great supply of paintings. So when supply is strong, like it was, the demand will be there to meet it, regardless of what's happening in their pocketbooks, in their businesses. And takeaway three, which I think we could we could open up to like a small debate, is that this will likely bode well downstream for, like obviously these artists, most of them are dead or they're already you know legends, but this sh- result should bode well downstream for our puzzle results, um, just the day auctions that are coming up, some other types of gallery shows that have just popped open. Like this should be attention grabbing and should actually likely signal that all of these segments of the art market will perform well in the next you know couple months. I think even even some emerging art maybe that'll quell some of the jitters that was talked about you know mm-hmm. within the last few weeks. That this is uh, this is a rocking time for the art market, and I think the big question for me is. With this result, do you think like the investor type people will be like, oh, wow, like I'm getting creamed and everywhere where my money is now, my crypto, my -hmm. stocks, my bonds. But hey, what's going on over there in the art market? Oh, what do you think? Yeah, actually, I hope I didn't say this in the last podcast, but I think, no, I think I did, but I'll I'll repeat it again. I was, I was in a, a webinar finance webinar and uh, I was just like listening to them talk about how they were saying basically like don't feel bad every every single human being lost money in the last year and a half with the market except Exxon Mobil and you know <laughs> unless you're like in the Saudi royal family Sa- Saudi yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah. Family, yeah um Saudi Aramco <laughs> but they're like there's kind of no safe place to put your money blah, blah 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 like listening to this and you know essentially they're right in a lot of ways but then Matt and I started talking about it and we're like wait they weren't they didn't they never brought up art and actually, art is oddly like a very safe place to put your money. Right now. Right, right now. Like I think, yes. All right. So compare and contrast. Investor A bought a basket of like, you know, Tesla, Facebook, Google last summer in 2021. Mm-hmm. And then investor B bought some high quality, of course, you can't just buy all art, but like really well-researched, good quality emerging art or even you know some of this more auction kind of stuff and then you fast forward to this time yes i think art has probably outperformed the basket of stocks clearly Mm -hmm. like definitely um so you could say that that is a relatively safe place to put your money within the last you know 18 months Mm -hmm. i I, it, it is interesting i wonder how things will shake out downstream again i do think it will bode well but it remains to be seen. I, I can't say that with full 100% confidence. I think I can. Wait, yeah. I, I have I have a theory. And if this sounds way too woo-woo and out there, we can cut this. Right. But it was like kind of in like a meditative trance state. And I was thinking about these things. And As one does. As one does. 
And, well, what I was thinking about is I was thinking about the difference between the virtual or the simulated or the augmented version of reality versus reality. And the truth is, is that there is there is no supplement for the real thing. If, if you know you have a fugazi, you know you <laughs> have a fugazi. It can look and it can feel like you're in a space with a simulated painting or an artwork, but it's not real. It's, an artist didn't put their hands on it. Mm. And, you know, I think that you can only go so far in a simulated space or whatever until you want to get to the tangible real thing. Right. So the tangibility of a real artwork made by a physical hand, the gesture of the soul pushing paint across a canvas or carving a sculpture or whatever, there is no substitute for that well that said. money can buy. Well said. Big story coming out of New York City, but probably will reverberate beyond New York City, truthfully. And that's the topic of pay transparency. So on November 1st, New York City's salary transparency law went into effect, finally illuminating, I guess, what people are truly paid compensation across industries. Workplaces with four or more employees must now disclose pay in their job postings in good faith. And current listings show that most employers are have been complying. I think it's the art world capital and most of the jobs across galleries, auction houses, museums in the art world are concentrated in, in the city. Mm-hmm. So clearly when there's a pay transparency law, this is going to have an impact and these companies are going to have to report in their job postings how much they're paying their employees. So there's a, a great article from Hyperallergic that came out that comb through the detail of some salaries from art-related jobs in museums, galleries, auction houses. And because of the New York law, these are now transparent in the job application. So what do you think? I want to read some of them and you tell me if you're surprised or just give me your general thoughts. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I know a little, I I think I can make some estimated guesses just because I've been (laughs) in the workforce and I, I... just for the record, I have been, uh, I've been a front desk person. I've been a gallery assistant. I've been a registrar. I've been a gallery manager, and then I owned and operated a gallery, which never had an employee, but had interns, and occasionally I would employ staff for special events. Right. So you get it. I'm very curious to hear what people have been making because I know what I was making was never a livable wage. I always had three to five jobs, literally three to five jobs when I worked directly in the art world, not doing what I do now. So first job, development assistant at a museum. So this is someone who helps out with, I guess, fundraising for you know the museum, which mm-hmm. is a core kind of salesy function of an institution. So requirements to become one is a bachelor's degree and probably one year of experience. And the salary reported has been $45,000 a year in New York. A blue chip gallery, mm-hmm. front desk associate. I think that's another term for a gallery assistant. Typically need a bachelor's and or a master's degree. Uh-huh. I've been that. One year of experience, 23 an hour, which is around $47,000, $48,000 a year. If you can get full time doing that. If you can get full-time doing that. Sales assistant at a gallery. So that's someone who's directly involved in the revenue generating part of Mm -hmm. the gallery. Mm -hmm. They're probably maybe even doing some sales, but assisting the sales directors on invoicing, on client communications. Mm -hmm. A wider range for that one. Uh, 
you need a bachelor's degree for sure, and that is around fifty thousand on the low end to seventy five thousand mm-hmm. at the higher end. So, and the last one I'll go through is a cataloger. A cataloger is well, we just talked about the auctions, right? A specialist is someone who specializes in a category of art. They are those individuals you saw on the phone. Most of them are specialists. But if you were to rewind their careers, most of them all started off as a cataloger. And it's that entry point into becoming a specialist at an art auction house. Mm-hmm. So you're, when the collections come into the auction houses, you're going down there, you're inspecting them, you're taking notes, you're doing inspection reports to make sure there's no damage, you're doing write-ups. You're kind of doing the nitty gritty of how an auction or a sale is put together. You certainly need a bachelor's degree, although knowing what I know, most of these positions do require master's degrees in some sense. Mm -hmm. Some of the departments at at the auction houses require you to have some form of a doctorate, at least working your way towards a PhD. Yeah. If this is a very, you know, not in contemporary art or things like that. It is very important, obviously. I would say not not in contemporary art, obviously, but in some of the more scholarly things, maybe some you know, Chinese works of art or some type of other ancient ancient more thing. I mean, typically they're going to look for you to have at least a master's, if not, you're working towards some sort of you know PhD. So right. that salary is around forty seven thousand to fifty two thousand dollars <laughs> a year. So I say all this, and I want to give some context. So these are salaries for New York specifically. Yeah. Um, so the Census Bureau reports that the median salary in New York City is $67,000 a year. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of rule of thumb that people adhere to. Matt and I talk about this all the time. What is an income for a single individual that they need to make to live a decent, comfortable life? We're not talking about like, you know, shopping at Prada and balling out at Bottega Veneta and, you know, whatever right. just, just just get by just maybe living a, a nice life maybe you have a roommate i don't know so yeah so the medium salary is sixty seven thousand dollars keep that in mind there's a rule of thumb that a person should on average spend around 30 to one third 33 percent of their income on rent mm-hmm. so based on median rent prices in new york city you should be earning at least eighty thousand dollars to live in a one bedroom in New York. Now, you're not gonna live in West Village, you're not gonna live in Tribeca, but maybe you can find something with that salary there. There's always exceptions, you can always spend more, but that's for the rule of thumb of 30%. So as you can see, none of these entry level positions at museums, at galleries, at auction houses come anywhere close Mm-mm. to a like livable half. wage, to a livable wage in New York City. And that's the that's the harsh reality. So Yeah, and so I just wanna cut in here and say that I, I did read the hyperallergic article that came out about salary transparency laws exposing the art world's lowest wages and i made a comment on their instagram and i would like to read it because this is sort of my stance on art school in general and um (laughs) i I like kind of hate art school and i went for seven years but this is what i think i wrote This is why I think the first two years of an art education should be a business school with a heavy emphasis on the economy, geopolitics, micro and macroeconomics, and the premium luxury markets. After deflating the dreams that working in art will make you rich, the 10% that will still want to study and make art via the academic route will stay knowing fully what they've gotten themselves into. And the ones who drop out come away with an education preparing them for a career in entrepreneurship, which, surprise, can still be an art. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had conversations. I, I don't have an art school education. Mm-hmm. I was in traditional business programs. So when I got into this business, I started to talk to students that had gone, but also professors. And I was just curious, like, what is the curriculum for a BFA or an MFA? And they would go through it and they would tell me things like theory, practice, you know, more studio practice stuff. And I would ask them, I said, is there any sort of crossover to, I don't know, you know, simple business things, right? Like marketing or accounting or anything of that sort, right? Just curious. I didn't mm-hmm. expect them to say yes. But what I was shocked to know is that it's not only is it not taught there, which didn't surprise me, but, you know, it, interesting, is that it's like gauche to even yes. bring up. Right? No, we were told... We, when we were in, 
when I was in art school at SFAI, there was this big push from not just the student body, but also the teachers where we were begging for business acumen classes. Business acumen classes. That's the the good phrase. We were begging uh, the president and the board, like the teachers and the students united on this front, begging. And we were categorically denied this opportunity and told that our focus should be 100% on art and not on money. And that if, if we were in art school for money, then we were in the wrong school. It's funny. I wouldn't use, it's not you guys are focused on money. You're, you're focused on like living and like eating. Yeah. Right? And then it's I, not like you're focused on like, how do I make, you're just like, how do I uh, sustain? You know, so I came out of, I mean, I came out of school and I had this friend, bless her, Alexis, who worked at an art gallery and she like she had to teach me how to make a resume. Resume. It was, it was so embarrassing. I was like 27. I didn't know how to make a resume. Things like invoices. No, or, I didn't know. You know just ke- keeping books for or how to make a sale with a collector. Like these aren't, we're not asking people to like, I don't know, do a cash flow analysis of someone's balance sheet. Like it's just simple things that help you have a, a career in the arts, right? right. As, an, as a working artist. Because like it or not, Art is a $60 billion a year big business. Mm-hmm. And people who think, still think it's niche, I think you're just, you're, you continue to look backwards. Like yeah. this is becoming much bigger, more financialized, yeah. more structured. So artists who can swim in mm-hmm. those rivers, I think in the long run will, will do better, have longer careers. I think a really great book but they don't I need mean, to be experts, is all I'm going to say. But at least be aware of some of the, the, the essential things to business, running businesses and, you know, having some sort of entrepreneurial. I think a really good book, especially for artists in this context or people, I mean, because we're not just talking about, we're talking about people that are also support staff. I don't know what else to call them. That are, entry, that are entry level. That are helping the machine run, but but especially artists. Um Andy Warhol wrote this great book called The Philosophy of Andy Warhol from A to B and Back Again. I don't know if you've ever read that. Um, It's one of my favorite books. I've read it like three times. It's such a good read that I, uh, I, I, I read it like back to back twice. And then like I think I've read it like every other year for like the last 10 years. But in one of the chapters, he says, like, I no longer wish to be called an artist. I wish to be called a business artist. Mm-hmm. And he says, in the future, all art schools should be business art schools. And he talks, I mean, basically, he forecasted all of this. He said it's it, be, because of the pop art movement and what happened with American consumerism and, and how it, it, it infected mimetically around the world uh, what art was going to become as a business. He said artists need to be prepared to be business people. Yeah, and particularly, I think, they don't have to like run the, if they have, I don't know, if you get to a certain level, you get a studio manager or you have a gallery, that's like historically the galleries are the ones who took care of your business stuff. Or now we have this model of agents, which we'll talk about on a future episode, but like, you can lean on those people for all those types of things, but I think you need to be versed in the language so that you don't, honestly, you don't get into a pitfall or trapped or screwed over, honestly. Or go nowhere. <laughs> I, one example, I, young artists, just, I would say precocious, innocent, but extremely talented, had an opportunity to show with a, a group show right after this artist finished their BFA. And... I visited the show, I had a chat with them and we started to talk and I was just like, hey, so how's the experience been? Like, you know, is the show, we, we, we were friendly. So I felt comfortable asking like, so it's 50% of the sale will go towards you, right? She's super young. She was like, no. I said, oh, really? Uh, what, what is it? Uh, no, I, I, get, I get 40%. And I was just like, oh, uh, for a group show, right? And like, so... So it's 60, 40, like he gets the, the gallerist gets 60 and you get 40. She's like, I'm like, yeah. Like, did you, did he pay for like shipping or like framing or any types of like cost things that maybe that could justify? Yeah. Absolutely not. 
This artist had to frame it, had to bring it over there. It's going to have to take it out when it doesn't sell. And I thought, wow, this artist, truly she had she had no idea what the standard was. Yeah. She had no idea. And this person kind of, I think, in a predatory manner, just took that extra 10%, which he didn't need, but she certainly did. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was eye-opening to me. And I think basic things like that, you know, a course on, you know, what is the art business? What is a primary market? How do auction houses really affect you? Yeah, but the, you know what? I, I I will say there's not not uh, there there is no defense for people being predatory. Period. But I'll say that the professionalization and the standardization of the art business is relatively new. You have it. it truly is. It 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 it, it didn't really exist a hundred years in ago. In front of our eyes, we're basically seeing mm-hmm. systems set up like just in the technology that people use in the art world. The art world has been dormant technologically for yeah. a few decades and now you're seeing you know every there's art softwares blockchain stuff you know companies there was a company recently art binder which is an artware soft that was just acquired mm-hmm. like an art business was acquired by a bigger company in canada no this is a it's a developing situation as the business evolves yeah. and becomes really big i mean we're talking about a 60 billion dollar industry yeah so anyways i think the bottom line that we're sort of i hitting at here is for anybody first of all considering entering the the art world you need to understand that you're not going to get rich if you're plan what what is the term they say uh you can't eat prestige you know if if, if you go and work at moma or you go and work at the met or whatever you're not gonna make tons of money and then you're not gonna make tons of money working at uh, what do they what do they call it parochial or small provincial excuse me uh, museums either no. so or small galleries yeah. or even mid mid-sized galleries or even I mean very few within a, a construct of a blue blue chip you know there's haves and haves not within that that employment dynamic yeah. so I, I, I really um, I I think we need to move on but I I think that it's good for with this transparency, this is an opportunity for people to understand and educate themselves before they make career choices mm-hmm. and understand that really the only opportunity you have to make money is to be entrepreneurial and to take matters into your own hands. I don't see any other way unless you just come from an incredibly wealthy family <laughs> and you enjoy the most time tested academia. the most time tested most effective way to get rich is to be born rich yeah that's it love ya okay and for our final topic today i want to talk about something that i have begun to notice I think it really began to transpire during the pandemic when the sort of fire buying started over PDF and JPEGs, but it's in, in through Instagram, but it's called uh, paint fishing, kind of like cat paint fishing. fishing. Like, do you remember cat, like catfish? Like the I TV, do. I remember like Neve, Neve and the crew. Yeah. On MTV. So it's like these misleading images that you see on Instagram of paintings and artworks yeah. that look good photographed. On Instagram. On in Instagram. The and maybe they're cropped really well. Maybe they're colorized a little bit. But you're not actually seeing them up close. You don't understand the artist's relationship to the paint itself, the light, the color, how well they're able to manage. Like like managing oil on canvas is incredibly difficult as somebody who you know, I'll call myself a Sunday painter. I, I do paint that a lot of people don't know that, but it, and she does I, people. I don't show people because it, I, I, it's ha- good. I hate it. Um, but you know, it managing paint on canvas is, is difficult and you know, but, but you can take, you can easily take a picture of something and make it look great. And then w- 
people have been just fire buying in this speculative market and superstars have arisen through through Instagram mm-hmm. and now they're getting IRL shows that people are going to. Yeah. And they're not holding up. They're seeing the paintings in real life and they're realizing, "Oh fuck, we got pa- we got paint fi- we got fished. paint fished. We got paint fished bad. Like these paintings are not actually good. They just look good in pictures." I had an experience. I we were texting about it cuz I saw some shows this week. It was an artist who I've been following and I had only seen the work on on IG. And I'd say the artist, how I could describe the work was that it looked extremely polished, finished, clean. I'd use the adjective perfect. It was that like neoclassicism style in this, this time period. And when I visited the gallery and saw the works in person, what I was struck by was that as soon as you got close, you, you began to see, I hate to say this, but to me, it really read as sloppy. Mm. There was just a lot of like weird. Well, it's rushed too, because a lot of these people well, got hot for, so fast. At first off, it was, it was fucking shiny still. I mean, yeah. it's still a little wet. You're called literally wet. And of course, the show, the show like sold out, definitely. But when I looked at the works, I was just, I was disappointed. I was, I was not seeing, and what do I know? But I just, I, what I did was I, I saw a lack of, polish and technique that I had viewed on Instagram and thought that I would experience when I'd went there. Yeah. I saw like weird, like a little I mean, bunch of hairs left, weird textural stuff, strange blending of colors that do not look intentional whatsoever. And of course the show had like 35 work. So they were just flying out. Um, it was disappointing. So I got paint fist. That is my paint fish of the week. Yeah. Um, that might be the art fail of the week, actually. <laughs> but this is a phenomenon that's happening a lot. And it's interesting because I've spoken to collectors who, you know, bought things during the pandemic. Online, right? Online, sight unseen, on these online viewing rooms or just via PDF or these alleged, you know, high res images or just through Instagram, DMs, whatever. And they get the paintings in person and they're trash. I mean, they're just not good. And They're not what they were sold. Like yeah. they, they were and sold on this and they ended up with something that didn't meet those expectations. I had a text with a really amazing artist this week. I, I wanna I wanna read you part of our conversation. I hope this doesn't sound pretentious that we were having this conversation, but You know it's gonna be good when she caveats I hope hope this doesn't sound pretentious okay all right ready let's hear the pretense let me see okay hey so and so Matt is your biggest fan ever I swear to god he's shredding another artist right now by comparing (laughs) them to you it's so precious and then I screenshotted your text message where you are sending me a picture of her painting where you said, I'm obsessed with this. This painting is perfection. Everything about it is perfect. And then I say, I don't want to say who he's comparing you to, but he's ripping. And then she said, it's amazing how much people have forgotten how much the physicality of painting matters. Skills surfaces the real. That's why there really isn't a difference between abstractions and figuration. Form remains. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys for caring and noticing. Yeah. And I said, well, we were talking about the different, the difference between something looking good online versus actually being perfect in person. We aren't hating on the artists themselves. But we're just talking about the work. It looks very sloppy. And then the artist says, yeah, but I'm older than her. And I said, yeah, but that's a problem when you, when you skyrocket really fast and you're expected to produce so much work so fast that you don't end up putting in the hours. And then the artist says to me, putting in the hours no matter what is how you get to where you are. 
And then I said, I know this is true. It's true for anything, including for me, which is writing. And you guys know writing is my main um, medium. And then I just end it by saying, I have this new theory about fragility and the bones of someone who's lived a life. The best way I can explain it is like how the casts that make the best whiskey are the really old ones, if that makes any sense. Being naturally gifted is one thing, but surviving with your gifts intact is another. So, you know, it, it, you can be naturally talented, and I think there are a lot of really naturally talented artists out there right now. And there has been the speculative market that has reached out and touched these people. And, and accelerated and them. And accelerated yeah. them. But there is this necessity for time. Time for them to for your develop. Gladwell, your Gladwell 10,000 hours because, for your yeah, craft. Because you know what? Like, they're still in that phase. And it happens with writers, right? Like, a, a, a writer will write in the voice of all the artists that are all the writers that they love for many years until they finally find their own voice in it. That takes a very long time. Mm -hmm. That takes essays and essays and essays and books. And it's the same thing with painting. It takes so much time. And that's why a lot of these artists will not survive the speculative market. They will just get trapped in a in a moment in time and that and that's sad for them and i'm not i'm not hating on them i feel sorry for them because they're gonna skyrocket so fast they're not gonna have the time they're gonna be at all the parties they're gonna be at, at all the celebrations and they're gonna miss that opportunity to actually become truly good but at the same time and i agree with you fully i hear this sentiment from some rising star artists that you know they spent the last decade or more struggling to make rent in debt and the opportunity to sell paintings is now right now we got to go i have these opportunities in front of me my paintings can sell for this much some of these people have never had steady jobs ever and they're able to get income so there's that impulse and i'm not i'm not this is why you and i both we're not criticizing them yeah. or trying to prescribe behavior because i can empathize with that like, yeah, go get it. You like, gotta make money. Get it. But we at the same time can say, well, maybe in the long term that can be detrimental. Or there's there's something about your technique, your form, as the artist said, that might not develop because of what you're being asked to do in the short term. How and many hours is it to be a genius? Ten thousand. Gladwell says ten thousand hours. Jerry, what's your ten thousand hours skill? With writing, I would say, I mean, you know me, you live with me. Mm. So writing, you've written, you've had 10,000 hours No, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm at 10,000 hours. I, I would say, and I'm, I'm going to be really honest. I, I would say I'm, I am at about 7,000 7, hours. 7,000 hours. Of writing. So I've, yes. I have written so much. So, so your best writing's ahead of you then. Yep. Wow. Hear that, folks? <laughs> Go to Gagosian.com and read the art fair reports. <laughs> okay, so we're going to wrap up. Jerry, a... what's, uh, what do we want to plug this week? What's on oh, this okay, week's we plug? Have, we have a couple of plugs. Okay. We got some plugs. First of all, I always mention this, but become a member on Gagosian.com. Why? It's $5, first of all. It's five fucking dollars. Or you can become a VIP and that's $30. But if you become a member... You get access to everything I've ever written. You also get access to all the talks I've ever done in public. You also get access to memes that I can't... Never before seen, too explicit for IG yeah, stuff that I, content. Stuff that I cannot post on Instagram because I will get shadow banned. <laughs> um, you know... Uh, it's true. It, it, it is true. It It's like a little universe that... If you get on, you get access to. And it's also a, a great place because we've set up a shop and there's a bunch of fun merch. And we have a new sweater that just came out that says... It's a good one. Um, Smile if you hate the art. Very fitting for our times. Um, and I think it would be really fun to wear that at Art Basel, which is about to come. It's like a thin organic cotton long sleeve sweater which will be perfect for miami weather in 
late November, early December. So check that out. Um, and also, you're, if you, you've got to get the Jerry report. And then on top of that, I'm holding two events. And if you're a member, you're going to get invited. One is going to be a really fun like fitness event. I can't say too much more yet, but uh, news to come, an invitation to come. And then the other one is going to be a party on the beach. Also, information to come. And you've got to be a member if you want to come to the party. So, hey, it's five bucks. Worth it. it, it it's technically now cheaper than a latte at Starbucks. So, <laughs> gagosian.com. Come on over and join. So, it, in addition to all that good stuff, Jerry, last week you announced applications are open for your your studio sponsorship. So... Mm-hmm. Shout out to Annie Armstrong, Wet Paint's finest, who gave it a shout out on Wet Paint as well. So folks might have questions about how they can apply. And the simplest way, we're going to link it in the description of this podcast at the bottom, a clean PDF that can tell you how to apply for the studio support from Jerry. It's also available on gagosian.com, but we'll link it right here in the bio so you folks can check it out and get those applications in. And finally... We're going to do, I mean, obviously this is going to be a weekly podcast, but our next podcast is going to be our pre-Miami episode. Our Basel preview. Where we're going to be talking about what to do, where to stay. Who's showing, what what days, yard fairs, like parties, where to to stay, what to wear, what to do. I think sometimes people (laughs) just... I remember before I got into the art world, I heard Art Basel. What medications to pack? I was like, what is this thing, Art Basel? Like, I, I saw it in memes. I had no idea what it actually meant. Oh my I God. think a lot of people, like, as it's grown into it's this mainstream, of, like, Burning Man style uh. thing, I think people do need a... Uh, a starter pack for it. A starter pack. Like, how do you navigate this thing? Okay, what that's it what it's mean? called. The next one is called the Art Basel Starter Pack. Art Basel Starter Pack coming on next week's episode of Art Smack. Mm-hmm. We'll see you then. All right, guys. What do you always say? See you on the internet? See you on the internet. Later.